I'm Eric. And I'm Jeff. And together, we're It's The Real. Today, in 2023, we're established veteran hip-hop sketch comedians having worked with everyone from Cardi B to Stevie Wonder, Jack Harlow to The Locks. We've made a career for ourselves that is nothing like our parents imagined we'd have when we graduated from college. And if we're being honest, and over the next 10 episodes, we certainly will be, even growing up obsessed with hip-hop 30 minutes north of New York City, we never thought we'd have careers or live like this. The closest we'd get was listening to Angie Martinez or Funkmaster Flex on Hot 97 on a boombox in our parents' basement. Or going to a record store and reading the latest issue of XXL Magazine cover to cover. Or, and we didn't even have cable in our house growing up, watching Yo! MTV raps at our grandparents' place on vacation. We're white, we're Jewish, we were fans and outsiders and living in a time when superheroes were made and protected by gatekeepers. But here we are, a decade and a half into our career, and maybe you know us from our deconstructing Biggie sketch on YouTube, or our music, or our podcasts, or our tweets. Maybe you watched us on The Breakfast Club and thought, how the hell did these guys get here? Well, the answer is similar to J. Cole and Wale and... Big Crit and Dom Kennedy and Nicki Minaj and Currency and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. A ton of commitment, a singular and unique voice, and a website called NawWrite.com. For years, NawWrite was the premier hip-hop space online, a place where artists of all kinds and from locations across the globe would hope to see their names and have their music heard. The site was curated by a two- and sometimes three-person team, led by a man who went by the name Eske. Eske's taste would define the time. Songs that he'd pick from thousands of daily emails would at best change lives and at worst become fodder for a loyal audience who spent their workdays in the comment section. Now Wright put Drake on. Now Wright helped birth Black Twitter. Now Wright, alongside dozens of hip-hop dedicated sites, went fully around the powers that be to send culture in an exciting new direction that's lasted for 15 years and counting. The blog era had its peak run from 2007 to 2012, and everyone has their own theory why this time came to an end. Social media, record company lawyers, streaming services, and more. But the truth is way more complicated. Today, there's no Wikipedia entry for Na Right. SK barely posts on Instagram. Every once in a blue moon, he'll like a post on Twitter. If you direct your internet browser to nawrite.com, an error message pops up. At the same time, Drake is the biggest artist in the world. J. Cole and the roster at his own label continually top the Billboard charts. Wiz Khalifa's sold-out tours are an annual event. But there's no evidence that Nawrite, the site that shined a light on all these unique talents, ever existed. And no one has ever heard why until today, where it's the real. And this is the blog era. Blogs, as a word or an idea, were not born from hip-hop. But the blog era can only refer to the websites that birthed the superstars who've defined pop culture over the last decade. Yeah, man, it was such a crazy time, bro. Like, <laughs> it was the wild, wild west. You want me to give you my music for free so you could put it up on a website? Are you nuts? You guys are the old guard, and we're the new renegade, like wild children, and there's no rules over here. We just post what we love and blah, blah, blah. I didn't see the storm that was coming. 
This 10-part podcast series is one gigantic story told through many smaller ones of how a new class of gatekeepers who championed authenticity over everything else took on the establishment in a fight for the ages. Later on down the line, yeah, it got a little messy. What? It's like everyone was coming at things with scalpels and he came with a chainsaw. I bought the Ferrari out of my internet. We thought it was going to change the world. And then the record company skipped us and just said, fuck it. We're It's The Real. And this is episode one. Valley of Joe Budden. Joe Budden wasn't born in New Jersey, but it was New Jersey that raised him. New Jersey was where he'd get hooked on hard drugs, drop out of high school, and father his first son before he was 20 years old. It was also the place that would give him his charisma, his lightning quick way with words, and the confidence that he would make a career as a rapper. Joe lived in a world where SoundCloud didn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. When Apple was a niche computer company, a punchline compared to the dominant Microsoft. There were no shortcuts for a rapper from the land of Springsteen and Bon Jovi. No shortcuts for a young man with big dreams. No shortcuts for a brand new dad who refused to be absent the way his own father was. Joe Budden had to make it. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you feeling? Very well. Great. Listen, Joe, and we're we're going to record right now. This is going to go within this whole oral history of the blogs. Mm-hmm. What do you know as a teenager in terms of like your options as an artist and where you can go? Uh, signed to a major label. That was it. In Jersey City, New Jersey, we didn't have much representation at the forefront of hip-hop outside of Naughty by Nature. All we ever knew was what came across television or what was on the radio. And that was major label stuff. It was just get a major deal at that point. Def Jam Recordings stood as the mecca, the biggest and the best, certified in the streets and on the charts. By 2002, if you were from New York and you weren't signed to Def Jam, rap might as well have been a hobby. Becoming a Def Jam artist wasn't as easy as submitting a resume or wearing a jacket with a turntable arm stitched on it. You had to make yourself wanted. It would help if your music blared from every car stereo in town. But without connections to corporate TV or radio stations, how would you be seen or heard? You had to start with mixtapes. My first real introduction in New York was probably via mixtapes. I had no idea that the mixtape scene was so intense in New York with so many different people trying to get on. And if you get on, it's probably only 5% of y'all that fans will actually stick to. Joe made his mixtape debut in the early 2000s when one of his songs got into the hands of Jamaica Queens DJ Cutmaster C. I didn't know Cutmaster C. That was the placement strictly through a relationship. That was somebody I know giving it to somebody that they know, giving it to somebody they know. And I was low on the tape. Oh my God, maybe 23, 24. But I didn't even know that was important. I was just happy to be there. I sent one of my early demo records to High 97. This was when Stretch Armstrong used to do a show on Sundays uh, that just played new music. Um, And he played one of my songs and I was super hype about it. It didn't matter that it was the unsigned show or just felt good. His was just one cut on a 20-something track tape but it said Joe Budden, the name he was born with on the cover. Who knows who could see it? Another DJ, a dancer at his favorite strip club, maybe even a Def Jam A&R. It was real. Joe Budden was in the game. 
Mixtapes started out in the 80s as cassette recordings of club nights in New York to be passed around among friends. By the early 90s, they turned into a full-fledged hip-hop promo business and a proving ground for lyricists. DJs pulled together the hottest songs, and they pushed them through the streets and in mom-and-pop shops. It was bootlegging, but in a way that most everybody benefited. DJs were the tastemakers, rappers got an immediate audience, and labels on the hunt for emerging talent didn't have to waste time tracking people down. If a rapper proved himself in the streets, fans would support him in the stores. At the dawn of the 2000s, aspiring MCs would line up three deep outside New York's Hot 97 in the hopes of pitching themselves to one of the station's personalities walking into the building. Brooklyn mixtape DJ, Sycamore. That was part of your rites of passage, going outside, waiting for them, getting ahead of demo, even if they never played it. Like, you want people to feel you and see you, like, I'm serious about this. It's like, even if they don't play your shit, they're going to know my name. Steve Carlos began his career in street promo at Def Jam. Every major mixtape DJ from the street that had a brand and had an outlet on the mixtape circuit worked at Hot 97. There was Green Lantern, there was K Slade. You know, Fleck did it on the high-end commercial side. You had Envy, you had Clue. Anybody from the club and mixtape circuit worked at Hot 97. And you got on through the DJs. The most famous example of mixtape success was 50 Cent. After surviving an attempt on his life in which he was shot nine times and subsequently dropped by Columbia Records who viewed him as a dangerous liability, 50 withdrew to recover, reassess, and retaliate. It was his June 2002 mixtape, 50 Cent is the Future, that proved transformational. Rather than compile radio freestyles, 50 hijacked instrumentals, and with surgical mimicry and new lyrics, turned those tracks into his own, reintroducing himself as alternately charming and dark, hilarious, and menacing. The songs proved red-hot on the streets and irresistible to radio DJs, and in short order caught the attention of Eminem and Dr. Dre, who would help get 50 an unprecedented $1 million deal with Interscope Records. When it came to street buzz, no artist came close to 50's level. Except Joe Budden. Skane Dalla, who started in the music business as DJ Clue's manager, was a new A&R hire at Def Jam. He knew that he couldn't just bring any old artist to his bosses. What I admired were MCs, like people that can really go on a microphone. And I felt like, lyrically, Joe can spar with anyone. So I'm thinking I got a superstar on my hands. Not that Joe Budden could be confused for any other superstar. He referred to himself as regular Joe. No gimmicks. Having put everything on the line, Joe was here to take advantage of any opportunity he was given. What got to everyone else, meaning like how the game gets to you with the flash, the jewelry, the gold, buying certain things like, yeah, it gets to everyone that got to him a little bit. But the majority of it, he didn't give a fuck about. He wanted to make sure he bit your head off when he was rapping and that his bars was the best. And then, you know, everything else came second. He wanted to work, be in the studio, cut a dope-ass record, and then that was that. Like, he wasn't into wearing a jewelry, because fashion really wasn't like how it is now. Like, we wore big, baggy, fucking everything, white T-shirts, oversized hats, and big pants sneakers. Like, I mean, I don't even know if we can call that shit fashion. And fucking, uh, you know, uh, uh, oversized jersey, no matter what sport. Backed by local executives Webb and Nitty, Skane brought Joe Budden to the attention of President Kevin Lyles, 
by walking into Kevin's office, interrupting an interview with MTV, and forcing him to listen to a CD of Joe's music with MTV's cameras filming. And Kevin fucking loved it. So he closed the deal. Joe Budden from Jersey City, New Jersey, was now a Def Jam artist. Joe had a deal somewhere else, so it didn't, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't matter. Like, obviously, I wanted it to be at Def Jam because, you know, Def Jam. Like, it, I don't need to say more. It's Def Jam. Jay-Z is signed to Def Jam. You know, his Rockefeller deal was through Def Jam. Public Enemy, L.O. Cool J, Def Jam. You know what I'm saying? Method Man's on Def Jam, Superstar. So I wanted him on Def Jam where I was working. Hip-hop was built on first-person authenticity. In the late 90s, the stories told and images presented were street tales. Jay-Z was a former drug dealer. DMX came up pulling robberies. Black Rob spent most of his youth in and out of jail. To be taken seriously, you had to have gone through a specific type of struggle. These experiences were packaged and sold, and there was success, followed by copycats, willing or otherwise. But Joe Budden's authenticity was different. His references, his sense of humor, even the aura he had around him was unheard of in hip-hop. But that didn't stop his team from trying to fit Joe into a well-defined box. Gabby Peluso worked in publicity at Def Jam. Diddy and Webb were trying to make him a fucking gangster, and I was like, guys, he's not one. So you're going to try to make him be something he's not. We, we take him to an interview at BET, and he's sitting Indian style on the corner in the fucking booth. Like, you, he's got pajama bottoms on. Like, you can't hide those things. Like, eventually, people peel back those layers. In December 2002, Joe bought a $55,000 Hummer. It may have helped him dress the part, but the label still slept on the pajama pants wearing rapper. Joe was local. He was unformed. He was mixtapes. He needed a hit on radio, or as Skane puts it, No one really gives a fuck until you make them give a fuck. And what made everyone give a fuck? A song called Focus. We was working out of a basement studio we had at the time in Queens. They played this shit for me, and I was like, yo, this is fucking nuts. It was basically a freestyle, right? I'm like, nah, we need to make this a record. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take, if you focus, man, if you please rock with it and you overstand. Hey, you focus, man, whether who be a rover, man, we doing us. And we're going to repeat that. We did that, we chopped it, he repeated it, and then next was history. I think Webb might have rushed it up to DJ Enough. Enough was the first person to play that shit, and then it was, it was, it was literally on from there. The phone wouldn't stop ringing. I need that record, I need that record, I need it. This is not just a New York thing. Like, people outside of the state were reaching out to us. You know, we have relationships through Clue, you know, traveling, touring the country, like other DJs, people requesting that. Who is that? I need that. That's the Joe Budden kid that be on Clues tapes? Yeah, I need that. The beat was undeniable. The flow, magnetic. His wordplay, sharper than anything on the FM dial. All this paper is the only reason Jordy wanna call me later. No, I won't see you tomorrow. How we going out to eat? I thought you ain't swallow. As DJs on mixtapes at clubs and on radio kept the record on Billboard's charts for 17 weeks, there were other unmeasurable signals that Focus was crossing over. But I knew they was jacking them when they gave them court side seats to the fucking Knicks. You know I mean, you don't even get that when they, like, thinking, like, you're going to be it, the next thing. The buzz around him was fucking crazy, especially, you know, in the underground scene and then in New York. 
at that time, Clue's mixtape was the internet. That was how you got your music first. So him being on that shit all the time and hearing him and him actually killing and people wanting to hear Joe, a lot of folks have known it, but sometimes people didn't want to hear X, Y, or Z. People are looking forward to hearing Joe on Clue's mixtape. That included actress, singer, and worldwide superstar Jennifer Lopez, who loved Focus so much that she flew Joe, Skane, and producer White Boy out to Canada to do her own take on the record. The wild shit was, you know, that was my first time meeting her, and she was literally Jenny from the block, just a cool, down-to-earth girl. As she's cutting the record, another little surprise came. Ben Affleck, I guess they were dating at the time. I believe they were engaged. He actually pulled up to the studio and I was shocked because I got a little bit of height to me. You know, I'm 6'2", and he was actually taller than I was. So I was a little bit shocked meeting him. Focus brought Joe to Vancouver to meet Benifer. It put him on the road, playing club dates across the U.S. It even turned him into a superhero, casting him in the hugely popular wrestling video game Def Jam Vendetta. Regular Joe stood toe-to-toe with Method Man, Scarface, and Ghostface Killer. Lior Cohen, the CEO of Def Jam, started telling the press that Joe Budden was the future of the big label. Just Blaze. In just a couple of years, Just Blaze, another Jersey representative and the hip-hop producer of the moment, had gone from the outskirts of the industry selling ringtones off of two-way pagers to becoming the go-to hitmaker for everyone, from Mace to Mariah Carey. There was something about his soul-sampling production. Oh Boy by Cameron, that was his. Jay-Z's Girls, 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 that was his too. You want a plaque on the wall? You went to Just. And the best way for Def Jam to show Joe Budden how much they believed in him? Pay for studio time with Just Blaze. So eventually we set up a session at Right Track Studios on 48th Street. The way I used to work back then when studio budgets were, or label budgets or album budgets in general were just, you know, actual budgets. And the money was, you know, there was a lot of money in it. You know, I, the way I used to work back then was the artist would just come to the studio and I would just make beats on the spot. Most times I'd get there like two hours before the artist so I could make a few things and then they could have some things to pick through by the time they got there. And in this particular instance, I didn't love anything that I had made that day. Played it for Joe anyway, you know, but they weren't landing for him. And I was still sitting there working on stuff while he's in the room. And Joe is, you know, doing his weirdo Zen thing with his shoes off and his legs crossed in the middle of the floor. And uh, I'm like, this guy just has his shoes and socks off in the middle of the floor to do with his legs crossed. It's weird. So nothing that I'm doing is landing. And I can tell that Joe's not really reacting to anything either. So at that point, I'm not all the way in panic mode yet, but it's getting to that point where it's like, you know, I got to do something. So I was kind of just like, all right, let's just go into the stash. And I remember that Purple Up beat, or the beat that became Purple Up. And I played it. And as soon as I played it, his ears perked up. And he was like, that's the one, let's go. The magic of a hit record isn't based in algorithms or money, but rather chemistry. The beat, which had previously been available for Jay-Z and also as a Beanie Siegel and Freeway follow-up to their hit song Rock the Mic, suddenly sounded like it was tailor-made for Joe Budden. 
Joe wrote all three verses in short order that night and came back the next day to finish the hook. All the while, Skane looked at Just Blaze like, dog, I told you. You know, back then it was like you had to constantly work a record for months on end, you know, like getting DJs to play, trying to get radio stations to add it, you know, and then you might shoot a video for it. It all happened very quickly. Like as soon as it left the studio and went to the label, Def Jam pushed the nuclear button on it. You know, and sometimes you set a record to Def Jam in that era, and it was kind of like they just sometimes they just went through the motion. Like, all right, this is what you want to be the single? Okay, cool. If everybody's in a grant, we you know, we go through the motions and get DJs on it and get radio stations on it and see what happens. This was like, oh no, this is the one. Pump It Up would go on to spend 19 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. The music video was constantly airing on MTV and BET. It played on Major League Baseball broadcasts, throughout the NBA playoffs, and fucking NASCAR races. Pump It Up was featured in the biggest movie in America, Too Fast, Too Furious, and prominently led the film's soundtrack. But all of this wasn't happening in a vacuum. The music business world that Joe Budden, major label artist, had entered into was not the one he looked at longingly from the outside. The system was going through an existential crisis. This wasn't just a test for the industry to figure out. This was all-out war. Napster was fucking dope. Marissa Mendez's obsession with the rapper Cameron and his group The Diplomats started when she was in the ninth grade. But listening to the radio or watching TRL on MTV and hoping they'd play her favorite songs was not good enough. So when her father bought her a new laptop, the first program that she installed was the file sharing software called Napster. I would just type in Dipset and find like all these mixtape cuts. However, there apparently was a doo-wop group from the 50s named The Diplomats. So I ended up with a lot of random doo-wop songs as well. But it was just really cool for somebody in Jersey specifically who didn't have access all the time to just go to Harlem and get mixtapes and stuff. Like I used to just really discover so many new, new songs and stuff for free on my computer. It was, it was great. When Napster hit the internet in 1999, Time magazine compared it to the toaster or washing machine, this essential thing to have in your home. The software made the music available for download on your computer. Forget driving to Sam Goody for an $18 CD. Napster would help you locate anything you want. Commercial hits, underground classics, rarities, remixes, whatever, for free. There had always been bootlegging and music trading, but this was something else. Marketing executive and artist manager, Naima Cochran. I went to an old CD book and I have all of these demos. Like I have a Q-Tip album he never released on Arista. I have like three different versions of Carl Thomas's emotional album before Bad Boy finished it. And these roughs and demos used to just be out on the streets. Anybody had them, you could get them at a barbershop. You could get them from your friends. People were passing them along. You could do whatever. And they didn't cut enough in the profit margins to really make a difference. The Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA, a group created to protect artists and the greater music business from piracy and copyright issues in the 1950s, recognized Napster as an enemy. On the other hand, Napster said they believed the trading of MP3s would result in the selling of more albums. In 1999, the RIAA sued to have Napster shut down when it had 100,000 users. But that only brought the service more attention. Within a year, that number had grown 
to 30 million. Hip-hop music archivist and the outspoken co-host of the Joe Budden podcast, Ice. So for me, it was always having a collection of music. I was a collector from the minute I got into music. I remember I got my first iPod and I filled it. Once I realized, okay, I don't have to carry the CDs. I used to keep a CD book in a car. I would make mixed CDs myself with my favorite songs from multiple artists. And, you know, so I don't have to keep switching. And once the iPod came out and it was, yo, now I could just put all my music on this device. It made me want to collect even more. Now, instead of me just having this project, that project, I want your whole discography. I want the hard to find records. Like now I just want to be complete and thorough. The music industry may have been late, but it wasn't stupid. The majors linked with Apple and the iTunes Music Store was launched on April 28, 2003. A legal internet marketplace to buy MP3s, which would work in tandem with the iPod digital music player, giving Apple a powerful new tentacle. People were buying iPods by the millions, quickly becoming the most profitable arm of Apple's business. The idea of selling songs for a dollar was rolled out at the iTunes launch event by none other than Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. And all of this music with all of these rights, you can buy for 99 cents per song with no subscription fee. Now, how much is 99 cents? Is that a lot, a little? We think it's not so much. How many of you had a Starbucks latte this morning? Three bucks. That's three songs. How many lattes got sold across the U.S. this morning? A lot. 99 cents is pretty affordable. And so songs were sold for 99 cents, not because it would benefit artists or because that's what they were worth, but because it was a nice number that would help sell iPods. Executives were stuck. Give music away for free or sell it for 25% of what it had previously been worth. And according to Jamal Jamo, who was then starting in Def Jam's small digital marketing department, the top brass needed more than mathematical help. I was brought into my boss's office to explain iTunes. I lie to you not. What is this? How does it work? How does it know the music? And then proceeded to load 10 CDs into the iTunes library. iTunes had a long way to go to save the industry. Tower Records, which just five years earlier was a billion-dollar global record store, filed for bankruptcy. In 2002, reportedly two of every five CDs were being pirated. A legal e-store like iTunes wouldn't come close to making up for the loss. The big question was, how do they sell music when everybody's getting the music for free? Everyone was at a loss because the CDs that they would send into production and would do big releases around, they'd be on fucking LimeWire the week before release at the latest. And now your entire plan has been decimated. So it was more a place of panic versus how do we use this excitement? How do we feed this demand? The industry was cratering. Between 2002 and 2003, Universal Music Group, which owned Def Jam, had gone from making over $6 billion annually to less than five. A billion dollars just vanished. They let 4,000 people go, 34% of their staff, and even that wouldn't be enough. Universal needed quick money. They were selling off all their distribution plants, outsourcing marketing jobs, trying to do a lot more with a lot less. That is the world in which Joe Budden's debut album came out on June 10th, 2003. 
The label was trying to navigate new rules in a changing world while still going full speed ahead with old commitments. On top of that, Def Jam was stepping in their own shit, causing their own mistakes. Pump It Up, Joe's smash hit, had already impacted at radio, had already been available for purchase as a single, and should have first come out on Joe's album. Instead, it would drive the Too Fast, Too Furious soundtrack two weeks before Joe's debut. Both projects were on the Def Jam release calendar back-to-back. That was a major fuck-up. You couldn't preview music back then. So if you heard this record at, think about it, if you heard this record at radio, right, and then you see if it's being advertised that this record is on this particular soundtrack, you're going to go get it. Like, you got to remember, back then we put out two singles, album. You didn't know what you was getting. I could have gave you two singles, and then the other 10 records could have been me humming. It was literally like a surprise when you got the records. All you had to wait to see was on the track listing. But now here's a record that's out, that's cracking that radio, and here's where you can get it first. If that's all you want, then that's what you're getting. Now it's on Joe's album. If you're a true fan, you're going to go get the album. But if you're just interested in that single, you got it already. So, yes, I do think it affected Joe in some way, fashion, or form. So here's what happened. So you guys know, back then, when you did a physical CD, you had to have all of your parts in to the plant by a certain time, or they couldn't mass produce the records in time to get it into the stores on time. If you didn't get it into the stores on time, you would get charged a terrible penalty fee by all of the major chains and then not small numbers, big numbers, 35, 40 grand per store if you didn't deliver because they would save shelf space. So if you struck your street date, you would get fucking penalized. So what happened was Joe's album was supposed to come out before the soundtrack. And then the song was just going to be a part of the soundtrack. Joe's song would be on both albums. The problem was, is that during the production scheduling time, and I can't remember which one fucked up, something happened where those releases came too close together and Joe suffered for it terribly because the soundtrack came out before Joe's album came out with the driver on it. On June 17th, 2003, the numbers came in. Joe Budden sold 95,000 records his first week, topping out at number eight on the charts. For comparison, 50 Cent's debut, Get Rich or Die Trying, hit number one, sold almost 900,000 physical copies its first week, and another 800,000 the next. You know, you do 95,000 now, it's like you you fucking doing backflips. But like back then, it was like... So it was, it was just kind of like a, a letdown. And then you feel it, you know what I'm saying? You know when you got something, you, you felt high. And he felt high, you know. He was recognized, moving around. And, oh shit, that's that kid that can rap. And you get a hit single, and it's like, all right, you feel good. And then, you know, the debut comes, and, you know, then, you know, we just thought we would do a little bit better. And, you know, obviously he has a gold album. You know, we just thought it would be a lot better. Plain Pat worked at Def Jam as an A&R. It's funny because it's like, they set him up to be such a big artist and they like sabotage him at the same time in a way. They put Pump It Up. I mean, back in the days, you couldn't get buy this shit on iTunes or buy a single. 
pump it up was so big and they threw it on like a Fast and Furious soundtrack or something like that. And that shit did like 300,000 or something crazy like that. And then they put his shit out like a month later and it was like, you know, off of Pump It Up. It was, you know, a lot of people had bought it already, I assume. For a follow-up single, the obvious choice was Joe's smooth crossover record with the R&B group 112 called My My My. But 112, also signed to Def Jam, was planning on putting out their own single, Hot and Wet, featuring Joe on the verse. Def Jam executives felt the two songs would cannibalize each other, so it was suggested to Joe that he find something else. The team went back to the well, collaborating with Just Blaze on a four-on-the-floor, Jersey House-inspired track featuring Busta Rhymes called Fire. We were trying to match that energy without matching the record. We didn't want to remake the same record, but Fire was the closest thing that he had to a, uh, you know, to a follow-up single, so they ran with that. But I think that maybe, because it was kind of like a hip house thing, they, I think there was probably not necessarily resistance, but confusion on how to really sell it. Because it was as dope as a record as it was, it was very regional. Fire never caught on at radio, though it did get some nice placements in the movie Mean Girls and HBO's Entourage the following year. But it was too late. Joe didn't even make the final cut of Hot and Wet, 112 replaced him with another Def Jam artist, Ludacris. Remember back then, it was almost like if you didn't perform well, your career ended, no matter who you were. It was just so difficult for these artists to climb back up once they didn't perform well in the stores. The stores themselves wouldn't place the artists where they needed to be. It was like you you no longer were a marketable artist for these chains. And we needed those front store end caps in order to be seen. Those were like life or death for an artist. So while you're watching these numbers, then all of a sudden Target's like, yeah, nope, not a big seller for us. Mediocre first week album sales meant stores would stop saving shelf space for Joe. And in a business where perception can mean more than profit, the system looked at Joe whose album actually made money, as a loser. Joe Budden would eventually go gold, but the Def Jam standard was platinum. The machine had no love for Joe, and it's not hard to see why Joe didn't love the machine back. You have a contractual obligation. I have an obligation as in doing my job, what I get paid for, to deliver. Getting the second product out, we had our struggles. He just wasn't into it. And I think Joe was just in Joe world. And it became a period of time where I felt like he didn't want to do this. It was a little bit of a struggle to get him in the studio and cut records. For whatever reason, I don't just feel like he wanted to be creative, but I did notice that he wasn't really jacking, making music. So Joe looked elsewhere to find joy. Surprising many, he accepted an offer to fill in as the main host on Hot 97's morning show after the station parted ways with the controversial shock jocks star and Buck Wild. Tracy Clarity reached out, I think at that time, they was having like certain people fill in. And the very first fucking time he did it, I was like, oh shit, oh my God. Good for him, but bad for us. As much as Def Jam studied radio charts and ratings, they couldn't wrap their heads around the value of one of their acts as a radio broadcaster. Radio is where Ludacris and Angie Martinez came from. This was small ball again. What was the point? 
Def Jam didn't sign this dude to be a morning show rabble rouser doing weather and gossiping about seeing Carmelo Anthony and Lala at the club the night before. Executives from Kevin Lyles and Mike Kaiser to Webb, Nitty, and Skane all wanted Joe out of that radio seat. We all knew he was good at it, like real shit. Like it was so obvious. I got to see it 20 plus years ago, how intelligent this kid was. He speaks eloquently and he has knowledge about what the fuck he's speaking on. We didn't want his energy there because we wouldn't get what we needed out of him. Go do your motherfucking job and I need an album. Like this kid seems like he's focused on doing radio and doing his media shit. And then, you know, then in true Kaiser form, I'm walking past his office and, you know, he just shot out. Yeah, it looks like your fucking boy is going to be taking the job at Hot 97. I'm like, shut the fuck up, Kaiser. <laughs> and, you know, he grinned. He got a kick out of this shit. But, you know, we was dealing with that with Joe for a while. If Def Jam couldn't understand Joe's direct line to a morning commute audience, then they definitely wouldn't get the online rap forums Joe was hanging out on. At this time, most people didn't have an email address, let alone an understanding of the internet beyond AOL's homepage. Finding your tribe took time and effort, but some were forming in the forums of allhiphop.com and SOHH.com. SOHH, originally School of Hip Hop and later rebranded as Support Online Hip Hop, was founded by the husband and wife team of Stephen Samuel and Felicia Palmer in 1995, and they immediately set some lofty goals. Preserve free speech online and become a center for hip-hop discussion. Felicia and Stephen recognized strength in numbers, so they sent their logo around to others who shared the same values, including early bloggers Jay Smooth and Freshalina. If your site featured the SOHH symbol, people knew you were down. This wasn't just a bunch of avatars on a website, this was a community. In 2000 and 2001, I was in these chat rooms, all hip-hop chat rooms. So just whatever was out there, Boxton, I was all of them, I was there. And there was some people in there that really knew music. I mean, you never saw them, you didn't know who they were, but they knew music. And what I was finding was, well, today, what we know for a fact, but back then it was like, hey, the internet just knows about way more shit <laughs> like, than the labels. All Hip Hop, founded by Grouchy Greg Watkins and Chuck Creekmer, want to be the destination for rap news, gossip, artist pages, and discovery. To fill the space that Vibe, The Source, and XXL had left wide open. When it came to magazines' resources and revenue, the internet was a super low priority. Print was bringing in the paper. This is Chuck Creekmer. They were making so much money back then. I mean, they were charging... I don't even know, but I heard, you know, just 20000 for a full page or some obscene amounts of money they were making. So there was really no reason for them to start doing something that was making no money or very little money, you know, because at the time, websites weren't making money. Hip hop news was a slow business rooted in monthly magazine updates. Stories around album releases or new artist announcements or beef squashed were well-researched and edited, fact-checked and formatted, printed and bound, all to be revealed once a new issue would hit your local newsstand. Felicia and Steven felt for a time there wouldn't even be enough daily hip-hop news to fill up SOHH's homepage. That idea got upended quick because those forums dedicated a space for people to talk and talk shit. The rap message boards might have forever remained a hole-in-the-wall hangout for those who stumbled in, but all hip-hop figured out a way to bring that experience 
directly to you. Noah Callahan Bever, then a writer for Vibe and MTV.com. All hip-hop sort of came on my radar when they started doing the two-way alerts, um, which I believe was in, like, the spring or summer of 2000. Motorola two-ways, immortalized in Jay-Z's song, I Just Wanna Love You, were pagers that you could page back. It was texting before texting. Everyone who was anyone had the thing. Seemingly overnight, all hip-hop had invaded every press outlet and record label. Thanks to these rumor reports, they were not only delivering news, they were driving the cycle. So we were like the first first to ever send wireless news. And I mean before everybody, even Yahoo came like shortly after us. We were the very first people to send news alerts to people's hip. So Russell, Jay, Diddy, I mean, you know, pretty much the whole industry was on our list. And then hundreds of thousands of more were on our list as well in different forms. Noah and his colleagues at more buttoned up publications saw all hip hop as unorthodox, if not renegade. Obviously, they were figuring it out as they went along and they didn't have to, you know, they didn't have fact checkers to deal with any of the sort of same legal scrutiny that, you know, uh, print publications had to, but it meant that they could get things faster. And um, I think that those sites really started to, you know, play to their own strengths of, you know, publishing news quickly and getting snappy Q&As with, with quotables. It was the exact amount of information that people wanted to get in a totally digestible format that was shareable and could get people talking. And they knew that they could beat everybody else to the punch because, you know, the lead time for, you know, for Vibe to have news, it would be like eight weeks, maybe 10 weeks. Hoff, the founder of OnSmash.com, was working in new media at Def Jam. And every weekday afternoon, he'd recognize it was four o'clock because all hip hop sent a rumor report. And it would just be amazing to be in the office and kind of see the wave of everyone's two ways going off and then seeing what the rumor reports were. And sometimes either our artists or people from the label executives or were, you know, featured and you just see everyone flood into like a private conference room. And it was one of the first times where I could clearly see something that's happening online resonating immediately, you know, real time. And how ironic that the same label executives who appreciated getting an all-hip-hop alert about Joe Budden gossip couldn't connect the digital dots to push Joe Budden's career. He was one of the only artists that I remember who not only wanted forums on his artist website, he was actively on there posting and engaging with fans. Most artists had that level of respect solely for print. A lot of people who evolved from the early online website forums were huge fans of Joe because he was one of the bigger artists to really interact with people in a meaningful way. Obviously, Joe had a huge hit with Pump It Up, but if you listen to a lot of his other music and a lot of the mixtape stuff he was doing, you know, he, he was rapping at such an advanced level that all the online fans really gravitated towards him. Speed, information, community. If the web offered all those things to someone like Joe Budden, why the hell would he want to deal with a system slowed down by politics, gatekeepers, and the bullshit of a business on the decline? That fall, Joe started work on mood music, 
a brooding and ugly project far removed from any of the upbeat hits he had put on his debut. His new stuff was introspective in ways that no mainstream artist had dared before. He doubled down on the darker stuff, his addictions, his depression, his screw-ups and mischances. Loki, founder of the blog You Heard That New, and a huge Joe Budden fan from New Jersey. That was maybe our first inside look to a rapper's life explicitly and just cold-hearted. Like, he laid all that shit on the line for a lot of us when he didn't have to, but he kind of was ahead of his time in that aspect. The record label would never get on board with stuff like that, especially when track 11 was a three-minute testimony detailing everything that went wrong with Def Jam over the previous eight months. Wait! Something must be wrong with the sound scan. That's when it all started to go down, man. Am I wrong or what? Here, too fast soundtrack did great. And my soul was on it. I think the way it seems. The wild ball seven commercial bumping it up with my face on screen. Had to change my second single because there's two 112 Joe buttons, but they're turned into 112 Luda. Joe talked about how the 112 situation got screwed up and how radio hated fire. How Lior Cohen, who called him the future of Def Jam, built him up and then let him down. How he should have been on remixes and tours, but the label dropped the ball. But Joe, who'd preached to executives about the world that lived for him online, would not let Def Jam stop anything. He would circumvent the label and deliver mood music as a mixtape directly to his fan base in December 2003. I mean, listen, it didn't help, right? It's almost like... If I caught my husband cheating on me and he just was like, fuck you, bitch. Yeah, I cheated on you. How about go go fuck yourself? As opposed to him being like, I'm so sorry. I'll do anything. He basically was like, go fuck yourself to the label. Joe Budden and Def Jam were on completely different pages speaking different languages. Joe's cloth was New York City. But the label's attention and that of most of America was focused on the South. For writer Rembert Brown, then a high schooler in Atlanta, Joe Budden remained the pump it up guy. It's like a basketball layup line song. Ultimately, like that's it's an incredible song for like high school kids to get to do layups to. We had like 80 people better than Joe in Atlanta. And if a rapper from the Northeast wasn't making any more pump it ups, was there even a place for his devastatingly honest music? With Atlanta rapper Ludacris, Def Jam had a charismatic, multi-platinum, multi-Grammy nominee who brought hit after hit after hit ever since being signed by the same A&R that signed Joe, Skandala. Marissa Mendez. Oh my God, was I a fan of Ludacris. He was loud, he was boisterous, he was colorful, he was creative. He brought this fun different element to the game where a lot of rap is usually serious but just like the covers the the music videos i think everything that luda like represented and presented was just like he was just great <laughs> 2004 began with joe stuck on the sidelines the label that he entrusted to push his art had moved their enthusiasm their budgets and their radio spins elsewhere but for the first time in what felt like a long time he received news broken on all hip hop that he found encouraging Lior Cohen, the longtime Def Jam chairman and his one-time champion, would be leaving. On February 10th, L.A. Reid was hired as chairman and CEO of Island Def Jam. L.A. was a true music man, a drummer, songwriter, producer, and visionary, 
having signed Usher, Tony Braxton, Outkast, Avril Lavigne, Sierra, and more. He put the music above business, as evidenced by the large commitments he made to artists at his last job, leaving Arista Records in a $100 million hole. L.A. came to New York with a plan to launch Island Def Jam into an ever more digital world with purpose and power and passion. After years of confusion and frustration, Joe Budden would finally be introduced to the man who would change his life. All right, here we go. Let's start with you introducing yourself. My name is SK. I'm the founder of NowWrite.com. I'm a Yonkers native, born and raised. And that's uh, about it. <laughs> The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Benner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlis. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is the blog arrow.